Isaiah chapter 12, we're going to look at all six verses. <laughs> uh, man, do you want a lot of water? Do you want a little water? Uh, just a little water for now. Uh, in a message that I've entitled, Words of Worship. So let's take our hearts to the Lord. Father, we just thank you for being with us, for ministering to us, God, and um, just... Uh, We pray now, God, that you would have your way in us individually, corporately as a body. Lord, just move and minister in our midst. Just have your way. Give us ears to hear you, God, and that we would respond as always appropriately to you. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody say amen. Amen. You know, speaking of Psalms, the psalmist, in thinking upon the might And the majesty of God. He wrote these words. He said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. Notice they're not the the result of the big bang or the whatever the case may be. He says, they're your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you would visit him thinking of the enormity of creation and in the reality of who he is in the context of everything he concludes the psalm saying O Lord our Lord how excellent is your name in all the earth in Psalm 86 we read teach me your way O Lord I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Wow, that's a great prayer, isn't it? Oh, would to God that he would unite our hearts to fear his name. He said, I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol, or from the grave. Psalm 139, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. What's my point? That wonder leads to worship. Okay? Wonder leads to worship. Meditation and contemplation upon what God has done, uh, revelation concerning who God is, will lead to the exaltation of His holy name. Guys, it may be your meditation or contemplation may be uh, over the vastness or beauty of His creation. It may relate to the indescribable work of His salvation, perhaps revelation of His person, insight, understanding to His great mercy, His great great love, his unsearchable wisdom, his compassion, forgiveness, holiness, power, and might. But guys, it's the wonder that leads to worship. Well, back in the 11th chapter of the book of Isaiah, he speaks in part to all of the above. Isaiah is given a glimpse into the incoming kingdom, uh, the, the, the time when the Messiah will rule and reign upon the earth for a thousand years. And he gives us insight into his person, a glimpse into a restored creation, the restoration, the reconciliation of Israel, the peace that will be experienced under his rule, a time where, when fear will find no place and the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, chapter 11 brings him to a place of awe and wonder. Uh, Any guesses what that leads to in chapter 12? 
It leads to worship. Let's look, beginning in verse 1. And in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. You might underline that. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. You know, as you study the scripture, you, you come to realize there's really only one interpretation. You say, well, that's your interpretation. Well, listen, no. Honestly, there's only one interpretation uh, to the Bible. And what that means is it, it only says what it says. And it only means what it means. Uh, however, there are seemingly infinite applications, right? One interpretation, many applications. And here in verse 1, the prophet is speaking to the time in which Jesus, you know, coming out of the context of chapter 11. By the way, when you're using scripture, how many of you understand context is everything? I just want to throw that out there because we're finding a lot today people picking out, not, nothing new under the sun, but you'll find these posts coming up on social media, all these things where people are picking out little verses and, and they're taking them out of context and they're creating some kind of position from them and it's just not, it's just not true to scripture. And so, you know, yeah, the Bible says that, but that's not what the Bible says. Does that make sense? And people will do this. But here he is speaking to the time in which Jesus will reign over the earth and how Israel will not only have returned to him, but he speaks of how they will respond toward him. He says, in that day, uh, the day of that the things of chapter 11 are fulfilled. He says, in that day, Israel, okay, you will say, Oh Lord, I will praise you, though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Well, what is this, though you were angry at me, nationally, ultimately, you see? Uh, well, it's in Daniel chapter 9, if you're a note taker, or whatever the case may be, you discover there in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel that God has determined 77s, okay, or 77-year periods for the nation of Israel, in which really, ultimately, all of human history will be uh, summed up. Okay, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to revolve around 77-year periods through the nation, ultimately, as I said, ushering in the summation of life under the present order of creation. As a matter of fact, uh, don't jump ahead of me here, uh, Miriam, but I'm going to read to you actually out of Daniel, because I gave them a scripture, but I want to give you another one that precedes it. It's in uh, Daniel uh, chapter 9 and verse 25, just so that you know I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, okay, uh, there will be... Uh, uh, so, uh, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks and the street shall be built again and the walls even in troublesome times. I went ahead and gave you that one. What I wanted to do, sorry Mary, and that was me, was give you the one before where he says 70 weeks are determined for your people and for the holy city to finish the transgression, okay, to make an end of sins, all right, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up, vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So in other words, all of human history and all of the things that God wants to accomplish prophetically will happen in these 77s. And then if you want to bring that one back up, Marion, he says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, that's key, there shall be seven weeks 
and 62 weeks. In other words, seven and 62, how many of you guys are, are pretty good at math? Yeah, me too. Terrible at math. But basic addition, seven and 62 equals 69, right? 69, what he's telling us is that 69 of the seven-year periods, or if you want to do a little multiplication, uh, 483 years would transpire until the Messiah, or Jesus, would be publicly revealed as the Messiah. You know, we're all into big reveals. You know what I'm saying? He's like, there's the biggest reveal is coming, and this is when it's going to take place. Now, guys, uh, I'm not going to go into all the detail uh, on Daniel chapter 9. I've taught the book of Daniel. You can find my studies on the app or whatever the case may be. They're free for you. Daniel chapter 9, if you're interested in the in-depth of it all. You know, it ties to uh, Nehemiah when the command, Artaxerxes would give the command, uh, you know, going forth to restore and build uh, Jerusalem and all. Uh, But the short of it is the day that the big reveal would take place 483 years from the day historically that Artaxerxes gave the command to restore and build uh, you know, Jerusalem. The wall would be built in troublesome times and all the rest. It would wind up being April 6th, 32 AD. This is a day that we refer to as the triumphal entry of Christ. The day, this is the day that the Lord has made, right? Uh, Psalm 118, which day? The day that the Messiah would be revealed to the nation, the great reveal, okay? Now, Daniel continues on and he says, after 60, after the 62 weeks, so we've had the seven, and now he says, after the 62, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Okay, what's he saying? Listen, was Jesus officially accepted as the Messiah by the nation of Israel? No, he was not. He was rejected, he was cut off, he was crucified but not for himself. It was for you and for me. It was for the sin of the world. Now again, to keep it brief, what we discover, remember, 77-year periods were determined for the nation of Israel to bring in the summation of creation as we know it and all the rest. But what we discover is that when Messiah was crucified, when he was cut off, the prophetic time clock was stopped Okay, concerning the nation of Israel. Israel rejected Jesus. God rejected Israel. Though you were angry with me. Are you following me how this is all tying together? Now, not every Jewish person individually is blinded to the reality of who Jesus is, but overall, nationally, there is a blinder. There is a veil. Paul speaks to this in the book of Romans, and he says that the veil or the blindfold is removed in Christ. Okay? Now, As you know, it was when Israel rejected Jesus that the gospel went out to the Gentiles, right? This is when, and the Gentiles not rejecting Jesus overall, but accepting Jesus overall, and Jesus built his church, right? He said, I will build my church. And this is what the Bible refers to as the age of the Gentiles. Uh, Paul the apostle said, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so God hit the pause button 
on the prophetic time clock for the nation of Israel. The gospel went out to the Gentiles, but God, this happened after 69 of the seven-year period. So what does that mean? That means that God owes, okay, if you'll allow me that, the nation of Israel one more seven-year period of time in which his anger, notice, will be turned away. And he will comfort, he will console, he will save the nation. They will see Jesus for who he is. They will receive him as their Messiah by faith. Now, when does this happen? Well, again, prophetically, scripturally, during what the Bible refers to as the Great Tribulation. Okay, The final seven-year period of time, you read of it in the book of Revelation prior to this that we're studying of today, Millennial Kingdom. The church will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17, God will reconcile, He will comfort the nation of Israel through Jesus Christ, and what a glorious day that will be. Now, that would be... <laughs> The short interpretation. I know there was a lot in there to digest, guys, but that was the the interpretation. But there's application for you and for me beyond that. Now, as for the unbeliever, if you're here today, you are an unbeliever, you don't believe in Jesus Christ, maybe you believe there's a God, you're not sure about this whole Jesus thing and all that. Listen, you, can I be honest with you? You need to understand that in your current state, the wrath of God abides on you. Okay? I just want to be honest with you. Uh, you know, this whole, uh, though he was angry with me, kind of we're come, moving into application, right? The Bible is clear. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe uh, the Son shall not see life, notice, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is not a fun nor desired place to be, okay? God is justifiably angry with sin. Does that make sense? But comfort comes, God's anger is turned away in Christ. Jesus is the one who paid the price for our sin. You know, how are we saved? It's not about what we do, it's about what he's done. It's through him that we have peace with God, that his anger is turned away. Again, Paul writes, therefore, having been justified by faith, notice, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And can I just tell you that if you've been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from condemnation to salvation, from death to life, then it, like the prophet here, it should resonate in your soul, oh Lord, I will praise you, right? Now, if you're a believer, then I want to encourage you, God's not angry at you at all. You know, maybe you feel like, you know, he's been angry at you for something you know, that maybe perhaps you've, you've done or you've entertained or whatever the case. Now, Satan has plenty of condemnation for you, but you, let's be clear, God's not angry at you, nor will he get angry with you. You say, well, pastor, how do you know that? Well, because the wrath of God was completely satisfied at the cross of Jesus Christ, okay? You might even say that God's anger has been exhausted in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Now, that doesn't mean, ladies and gentlemen, that God is just some kind of docile deity who winks at our sin. No, not at all. Let's not get it twisted, okay? Whom the Lord loves, he 
chastens, right? Hebrews chapter 12. God will still discipline his own, not out of anger, but out of love. But you and me, we now know God, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. You and me, we now know him as the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. Hey, believer, if you know God as the God of all comfort, the one who's not angry at you but brings peace, assurance, and comfort to you, it should resonate in your soul, oh Lord, I will praise you. Okay? Now, look at verse 2. He says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. By the way, this whole psalm, I, I pretty much have the whole thing underlined. Just, just throw that out there now. Instead of saying, you could underline this, or underline, just underline the psalm, okay? Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. And he also has become my salvation. I love the word behold here in verse 2. When you read the word behold, just think like, what would be a modern euphemism? Uh, check it out, right? He just says, behold. His praise, his worship is beginning to adopt the overtones of evangelism. Do you see that? He wants everyone around him to see that what he is saying is true. Okay? He's excited about the great work that God has done for him, and he wants everyone to see it. Listen, family, I want you to recognize, I want you to realize that essentially, okay, I'm not going to go into every nuance and detail, but look, can I just say that generally, that essentially, the only difference between worshiping and witnessing, or worship and evangelism, is whom you're addressing, you understand that? You ever stop to think about that, process it in that way? If you're speaking to God of his great works, the wonder of his word. Man, that's something I've been praying for you, and I hope you've been praying for me, that God would just keep us in that place or renew and restore to us the wonder of his word, you know. And if you're in that place where you're speaking to God of his great works, the wonder of his word, salvation, reconciliation, all the rest, ladies and gentlemen, that's worship, okay? If you're speaking to someone else about God, his great works, the wonder of his word, what he's done in your life, salvation, reconciliation, restoration, so on and so forth, that's evangelism, okay? Behold, he says, God. And you might even highlight or circle that word. Behold, God is my salvation. I want you to notice that he doesn't say God provided salvation. He says God is my salvation. In other words, salvation is not a program, okay? Salvation is not a prayer. It's not... A ritual, it's not a, a work or uh, some kind of system you have to make your way through. You dot your I's, you cross your T's, you go through the red tape, and finally you can be saved. No, salvation isn't a program, ladies and gentlemen. Salvation's a person, okay? And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, notice, and righteousness, and sanctification, and what? Redemption. Salvation. Jesus is your salvation. Okay? Listen, good thoughts won't save you. Um, good intentions won't save you. Doing more morally good things than uh, obviously bad things won't save you. Jesus saves you. He is your salvation. God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. What's the take home here? Listen to me. Faith conquers fear. Okay? Um, The key to overcoming fear is learning to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Guys, we live in a day where fear is on every side. People just kind of, they add this up plus that up. They draw the worst possible conclusion and presume that's the way we're going to go. Man, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, you see. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you, okay? Now, within this context, I'm not going to be worried. I, I, I can have peace. I can have security and assurance when I know, listen to me, that God is my salvation, okay? In other words, if it's up to me to somehow save myself, if I'm trying to, as I said a minute ago, if I'm trying to dot my I's, I'm trying to cross my T's, jump through the hoops, bust through the red tape, you know, I've made this deal with God, I've tried to do that, and more good than bad, and all the other things, if it's up to me to somehow save myself, I'm going to be freaking out, I'm going to be afraid all the time, right? Ladies and gentlemen, many of us find it a daunting task to even save a little bit of money. Come on, somebody. Let alone our very soul. Look, if I can't even save some pocket change, how am I going to save my soul? Okay? But is there anything too hard for God? Uh, Perish the thought. And since God is our salvation... We can trust and not be afraid. Are you with me? What is his name? Faithful and true. God is faithful. He will not lose anything that's been committed. That's what Paul said. For I am assured, I am convinced that he is able to keep that which has been committed to his trust. Have you committed your heart, your life, your soul, your salvation to his trust? He's able to keep it. He can keep it. By the way, I should say, you can trust. You can believe. Some people put this thought out there, well, you know, I'd really like to believe. I just, I just can't believe. You know, I'd really like to, but I just... Look, it's fair to say you won't believe. That's respectable. That's fair. Um, but don't say you can't. Uh, nowhere in Scripture is the exhortation, just try and believe. You don't find that. God has furnished more than ample evidence. The command is simply, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you see. But listen, 
Not only is the Lord your salvation, we see he is your strength and your song. He is your strength, meaning he is your resource, family. He is your sustenance. He is, as, as Paul told the close, he's your all in all. He is your everything. He's not part of your strength. He supplies it all. As for you and me, I believe our spirit is willing. Our flesh is weak. Yes? Uh, what I will to do, I don't do. Anyone find themselves in that place? What I don't want to do, uh, that I find myself doing. That's what I can provide. But we're more than conquerors through him who has loved us. He is our strength, our song, our joy. He's everything, okay? Now, look at verse 3. He says, therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now, if we lived in an arid, dry, desert kind of land, uh, you know, i.e. Israel, whatever, uh, this verse would take on a much deeper meaning to us. The picture would be of the joy arriving and deriving from a reliable, living, flowing fountain that never runs dry, a truly rare and precious gift. And such is the precious gift of God's salvation. It should bring joy. Look, it's hard for us to read this verse and not think of the illustration that Jesus gave to the woman of the well. How many of you remember that? That woman at the well scenario where Jesus said, look, whoever drinks of this water, perhaps there he was. He was pointing to the well. She was there to draw, and he asked for a drink, and then he, he said, if you knew who, you, who I was speaking to you, you would ask him for a drink, and he would give you living water, and you would never thirst again. And she says, man, I want that. He said, listen to me. If you drink from this Water, I'm telling you, you'll thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. That's John 4 and verse 13. In other words, guys, you can drink all you want from the wells of the waters of this world. Okay? Uh, the well of materialism. Uh, the well of hedonism. The well of fill in the blank. Right, Whatever it is that your choice may be, I'm telling you, you'll thirst again. You won't be satisfied. Not truly. Not ultimately. And if you're thirsting today, trust me when I tell you, don't go back to those old watering holes. Uh, come to the Lord Jesus. Taste the living waters drawn from the wells of salvation and you'll never thirst again. It's in John chapter 7, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers. The, the, the word more literally, torrents, gushing, overflowing, living water. And guys, we might... Note that there's no limit to God's resource of salvation. There's not just one well. There's many wells. Now, don't be confused. Many wells doesn't mean many ways, okay, to be saved. That's not what he's saying. Picture a, a, a great water table underground, you know, just like we have 
today. And, uh, but there are many wells drawing from the same source to various places, right? Listen, Jesus is the reservoir of salvation. But you can draw from his resource anywhere at any time. By the way, before we move on, you might note that with joy you will draw. Listen, there is joy in the Lord, man. Uh, Some people think that if you're a Christian, you have to be some sort of somber, sour face, never smiling kind of person or something. I mean, it's serious business to be spiritual. But guys, when I survey Scripture and I see people's lives transformed through an encounter with Jesus Christ, man, they jump for joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll never know sadness. I don't want to confuse you on this or that we can never pour out our struggles before the Lord. What I'm saying is, hey, no somber faces at the Lord's well of salvation. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. If your name is in the book of life, then rejoice in the Lord always. And again, right, Philippians chapter 4, I say, rejoice. Rejoice. Look at verse 4. And in that day you will say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples, make mention that his name is exalted. In other words, having drank deep from the wells of salvation, the worshiper sounds forth the exhortation to praise the Lord, those rivers of living water overflowing from him, encouraging others to worship along with him, to trust in the Lord. Call upon his name. Family, from salvation to sanctification, whatever our need may be, our help Our hope, our healing is in Jesus Christ. But I love the exhortation here to praise the Lord. It's as if he recognizes that God is worthy of more praise than he can possibly provide himself. You see, he's beckoning to others to join in, to help him out, to collectively, corporately glorify and magnify his name. And look at this, declare his deeds among the peoples, make mention that his name is exalted. Now, guys, I believe this applies both in the assembly and beyond the walls of the corporate gathering. Remember this worship slash evangelism kind of parallel Uh, Side by side, they're like first cousins, right? Worship and evangelism, they're very closely related. And we do well to declare God's deeds among the people. Guys, I love it when people inform me of what God has done or what God is doing in their lives. It's edifying for us to hear the works of God, to realize, look, God is still moving. He's still saving people. He's still setting people free. He's still giving people victory. He's opening doors. He's opening eyes. He's changing hearts. He's changing lives. Guys, this, it stirs us to give him praise. Amen? Amen. 
But beyond these walls, we need to realize, we need to understand that God desires, and might I say has always desired, that we as his people make known to others who he is and what he's done. Okay, are you following me? Both for us, in other words, who he is, what he's done, both for us personally, this would be your personal testimony, and you don't have to be a, this uh, scholar, this, uh, you know, some kind of know-it-all theology kind of a person. You remember the, the, the young man who, uh, the Lord opened his eyes, and he said, look, I don't know, I don't know. All I know is I was blind, and now I see, and Jesus is the one who did that for me. If that's all you can say, then praise God for that, right? But you're declaring his deeds, you're making known what he has done for you personally, but then also what he's done for them in the person, you see, of Jesus Christ. How that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But Jesus has come and paid the debt he didn't owe because we owed the debt we couldn't pay. Right? How that God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember, he was cut off, but not for himself. He died for us. And God, now listen, I don't know the whys, W-H-Y, apostrophe S. Maybe apostrophe. Is there an apostrophe? If it's the whys, no apostrophe. Thank you. I'm not good with grammar. Ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't figured that out by now. Um, but uh, I don't know the whys behind the what that God always chooses to do. He would be much more efficient and effective just to leave us out of the loop and do the work, you know, it would seem. But God chooses to use those whom he's redeemed to spread the message of redemption. Okay? But here's the deal. Until I have a heart for the lost, uh, until you gain a glimpse of the burden that God has for those who are perishing, the odds of you declaring his deeds among the people are slim to none. You understand what I'm saying? Until it truly bothers, or can, to use the, the biblical word, burden, right? until it truly burdens me that people are slipping off the planet apart from Jesus Christ, I probably won't interject the gospel or what God has done for me in conversation. As a matter of fact, I might be a little bit embarrassed to talk about it. But I'm just encouraging you that you have got to care for others more than what you care about what they think of you. Okay, you've got to care for others more than you care about what they think of you. That's why Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. In other words, he didn't care uh, about what anyone thought of him. Okay, he wanted to see people saved and he knew what Christ had done in his life. He knew he could do the same in your life. So he made the news known. He didn't care. He cared more for them than he cared about what they might think of him or even do to him. And God help us to have that burden. 
that ache in our heart for the lost that says, come and see, you see. Now, in verse five, he says, sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out, verse six, and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. Ladies and gentlemen, if the Lord has become your song, can I exhort you? Then sing. All right? If the Lord has become your song, then sing. Listen, sing to the Lord when you're alone, when we're gathering together. Sing to the Lord for he has done excellent things. How you could testify, God has done excellent things. Come on. By the way, who's closing? Karen, yeah, go ahead. He says, cry out and shout. Guys, it's almost like it's okay to be excited about what God has done. What do you think of that? Listen, I, I want to tell you, as a worship team or as a ministry, we never want to pump you up, okay? It's not our heart to inject an artificial sense of enthusiasm into our time of worship and song. But I'm just telling you that if our worship will never cry out and shout, then there's something amiss in there. More than not, I would say, we, just humanity, not you specifically, but just generally, we worship in a half-hearted, I guess it's our duty to do this kind of way. And, uh, or we wonder when the, the, the kind of the song element of worship will be over. Maybe we even come in a little late just so we can move on to the study. Guys, it ought not be. I'm just telling you, exhort yourself after the manner of the psalmist. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the, that's, a, that's volition, guys. That's making a cognitive choice. That's exhorting your own soul. Like we talk about occasionally, the preparations of the heart belong to man. You have a responsibility uh, to prepare your heart accordingly when you come before the Lord. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, you see, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Why? Why should we praise God so exuberantly, so, might I say, intentionally? Well, we've made mention of several reasons throughout our time, I believe. But Isaiah leaves us with two final reasons for lavishing praise upon the Lord. Number one, because of who God is. He is the Holy One of Israel. God is high and holy and lifted up and worthy of all of our praise. Number two, because of where God is. He's in your midst. God is with you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you know the Lord, God lives in you. I'll just throw you a third reason, a bonus reason. You guys want the bonus one that's found here? Number one, I didn't give you a chance to say yes or no. I'm just going to give it to you. Number one, he is holy. That alone makes him worthy. Number two, he is in your midst. He, is, he dwells in our midst. God, the Bible says that God inhabits, he is enthroned upon the praises of his people. Come on. How many of you want God enthroned in our midst? Well, then let's supply the throne. Let's praise him, right? But number three, see it here. 
It's in verse 6. For he is great. That is, he is powerful. He is mighty to save. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You, I, I just want you to be refreshed in the fact that the resurrection power of the Spirit of God dwells in you. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. So may you find yourself in wonder. And may you worship and exalt God with all that you are. For He has done marvelous, glorious, incredible, indescribable, magnificent things. Amen. Amen. God, we thank you for your word. And the wonderful reminder of the great things that you have done. I pray, oh God, that we be a people of worship who declare your deeds among the people. And may many come to know you through your work in our lives. And we just say all honor and power and blessing and praise be to you alone. For Lord, you alone are worthy of all that we can bring and so much more. As we sang today, Lord, you have no equal. You have no rival. Yours is the name above every name. And so, Lord, we humble our hearts before you. And God, we pray for restoration and reconciliation renewal of that relationship, God, that first love relationship. Lord, if we have fallen from that place of first works, that as you said to the church of Ephesus, that we remember and that we repeat, we repent and repeat those first works.